0: Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Andreas J. Kostenberger. He is professor and director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. His books include, his many books uh, include, The Theology of John's Gospel and The Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown, An Introduction to the New Testament. He has a recent book out entitled Signs of the Messiah, An Introduction to John's Gospel. That is our topic for today. Welcome, Professor Kostenberger. Hey, great to be with you, Mark. Thank you. Now, you say you love L-O-V-E, the Gospel of John. What, generally, what particularly appeals about John to you?
1: Well, um, I just love his, um, uh, just the intimacy that uh, just, really jumps out at me from the pages of his gospel, you know, the intimacy with which he knew Jesus. uh, I I think he's the person who's closest to Jesus during his uh, uh, three years of public ministry, and so he was in a unique position, uh, you know, kind of like a a chief of staff of an American president or, you know, a close confidant to to tell us uh, who Jesus truly was. So I just love his his theological profundity, his spiritual depth. And, and I just couldn't think of a better gospel, uh, both for a new Christian or even for, for somebody who just is really interested in, in just getting to know Jesus uh, more deeply. Yeah, yeah.
0: You begin by talking about signs, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. right there in your yep. title. Uh, why, why are signs... So important. I mean, what does what it suggest of, of understanding reality in a certain way when when signs of something else become so important?
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating. You know, I've thought a lot about that, and, and I think what got me on to the signs is simply uh, John's statement of his own purpose. Uh, at the end of his gospel, uh, he, he he tells us, he writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name so you know there it is he tells us himself in his purpose statement that that the gospel very uh, deliberately uh, and you know selectively uh, features certain signs of Jesus that were written for the purpose of of instilling faith in the readers, both the original uh you know recipients of those uh signs of Jesus and then also anyone who reads the gospel so they're not an end in itself, you know they're means to the end of 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 uh, of revealing uh both God and then also Jesus' as, as the Messiah to those who see those signs. Uh, and yet, uh, tragically, many who saw those signs originally, and still many today they see the signs, but they don 't understand that they're they 're pointing to jesus you know and and so at the end of the first half of john 's gospel, which many called a book of signs because that 's where you find those seven signs of jesus mm-hmm. uh, John writes in in john twelve thirty seven though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, and so in their case, the purpose of those signs uh, was not accomplished, and yet in God's sovereign providence, that their rejection of Jesus uh, opened up uh, the opportunity for salvation to everyone who does see these signs and who does believe.
0: Hmm. What do we know about John, hmm. just be beyond just some very basic facts about him? I mean, do, do we know much about him? We know
1: a great deal about him, you know, and I, I spent in, in the first chapter of the book, I, I spent a, a significant amount of time talking about him because, mm-hmm. you know, as, as probably many who are listening, uh, you know, may or may not realize, many critical scholars today uh, don't believe that the Apostle John, you know, the son of Zebedee, who's, who's listed as one of the twelve. Uh, apostles in, in those apostolic lists in, in the Gospels and Acts, many don't believe that he wrote the Gospel. But but I think that's a serious mistake, because uh, both the internal evidence, right in the Gospel itself, and then also the early Church, the external evidence, I think strongly suggests that that it was, in fact, the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel. And so I, I talked about the fact, fascinating, that uh, he's uh, usually featured alongside Peter in John's Gospel. He's there at the, you know, at the table in the upper room right alongside Peter. Uh, He's there in the high priest's courtyard in chapter 18. Again, he allows Peter to enter. He's there at the empty tomb alongside Peter. Uh, And then again, he's there at the resurrection appearance in in the last chapter. And so, When you look at the other Gospels, and even the Book of Acts, who is it, historically, who was consistently paired with Peter uh, in ministry? You know, and again and again, the answer is, it was, in fact, John uh, the Apostle. And like with any literary work, uh, the credibility of the work hinges largely on the credibility of the author and his identity, and so that is why it's so important to affirm that a historical eyewitness to all the major events in Jesus' life, wrote that gospel, because that is why it is so credible and so authoritative. Mm-hmm.
0: You like the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, what mm-hmm. is what is special about that phrase?
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, it's really an intriguing... Uh, you know, label uh, that is only found in the Gospel of John. And, and, and it's first used in uh, John 13, verse 23, the, uh, the narrative of the Last Supper, of uh, uh, where uh, the so-called disciple whom Jesus loved is right by Jesus' side, so clearly one of the twelve in a place of honor. And then he's featured again and again in the second half of... Uh, of the Gospel. I think, uh, of course, scholars have debated, you know, who is that mysterious figure, and I think most likely it is simply a, uh, a self-reference by the author, the Apostle John, uh, in order not to confuse the two Johns, because already in, in the prologue, in chapter 1, verse 6, uh, the author tells us that uh, there was a man who was sent uh, from God, and his name was John. But that John, of course, is John the Baptist. And so, rather than having two Johns and always having to explain, you know, which one he's talking about, uh, uh, the Apostle John just graciously steps aside and allows uh, John to be John the Baptist. And then he refers to himself, uh, you know, uh, using that that different name, if you will. And and I think the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, tells the reader something about what John thought was important about Jesus and of course the signature verse of the gospel John 3:16 talks all about God's love for the world and so the author includes himself in that orbit of God's love. He says what's most important that you need to know about me, you know, like your whatever your Twitter tagline or whatever is, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, I was a recipient of the love of Jesus which was ultimately demonstrated when Jesus died on the cross for my sins and so he, he, he draws the readers in to identify with himself and to agree that yes, what's most important is that Jesus demonstrated his love for us
0: when he gave his life for us on the cross
1: mm-hmm.
0: the, the, the opening of John's Gospel, is there any mm-hmm. precedent in the other Gospels, or, or elsewhere, for the conception of, in the beginning was the Word? Or is this the first time we encounter anything like this? Yes, I think
1: clearly, uh, in many ways, that opening is, is unique. and. Uh, uh, It it links Jesus with creation, because Mm -hmm. it alludes to, uh, you know, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so it immediately signals that now in Jesus something has happened that is on the same level of, you know, momentous significance as creation itself. It's basically Jesus came to to bring a new creation. He's the agent through whom original creation uh, came into being. Uh, and just like now, uh, his uh, his coming, the Word became flesh, it became a human being, uh, signals that Jesus identified with humanity uh, in our uh, need for salvation, and he provided that salvation. So in many ways, uh, you know, John really takes our understanding, like he does in so many other ways, to a whole new level. and whole new depth and profundity, like we talked about in your opening question. So, uh, he he really deepens our understanding of Jesus immensely. He was not just that baby in the manger, uh, you know, who first came into existence uh, there, uh, you know, at the Nativity in Bethlehem, but he already pre-existed with God before uh, he
0: created all there is.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You you say, however, that the the real center of the introduction isn't really the Incarnation, but what you refer to as the children of God. What do you mean by that?
1: Yes, you know, that's interesting. And actually, in my work on the book, I, I kind of slightly shifted my understanding of that. I always kind of you know, intuitively thought, what can be more momentous in the prologue than the declaration that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory? Uh, but then uh, I I read through the prologue very carefully and looked at some of the scholarly literature and what emerged is that there's some sort of a you know what literary scholars refer to as a chiasm or kind of an A B C B A structure um, it, the the, uh, the gospel be, uh, the the prologue begins and ends with an affirmation that Jesus is God. Then he talks about John the Baptist, uh, both on the front end and the back end, and then that leaves the section, uh, verses 9 through 14, in the middle. And so right smack dab in the middle of that is verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so it occurred to me that really what's most central is our need for salvation. And so really existentially what resonates most profoundly is that Those of us who believe in Jesus, who receive the free gift of salvation that God offers in him, uh, is given the right to become God's child. And so what could be more powerful? Of course, in the Old Testament, God's chosen people were the people of Israel. But now we learn that Israel is still included, but now... uh, the uh, orbit of salvation is no longer just limited. Anyone can become a child of God simply by believing uh, that Jesus was who he said he was.
0: Your full section one is entitled the Cana cycle. Uh, What is is the definition of the Cana cycle, that term?
1: Yeah, so we see that John was uh, a great storyteller who arranged his material very carefully. Remember, we talked about the purpose statement, where John says he, he selected certain signs and not others uh, for inclusion in his Gospel. And so it's quite apparent that, that the first uh, unit uh, in, in early in the Gospel, chapters 2 through 4, are bracketed on the front end and the back end by uh, what uh, scholars call an inclusion, an inclusio, uh, both in chapter 2 and then again at the end of chapter 4, where it refers to Jesus did his first sign at Cana, and then Jesus Jesus did his second sign in Cana. And so this is John's way of saying that, well, in the early stages of Jesus' ministry, uh, he already performed uh, signs that... That were in some ways maybe a little bit less conspicuous. He performs the the first sign, he turns water into wine at a wedding at Cana, uh, almost behind the scenes as it were, but still already he revealed his glory uh, to his followers through those signs. And and we see here that John supplements the other Gospels because uh, none of them actually even mentions Cana, which was really in many ways a kind of a small insignificant little village up in the Galilean north, but it became very significant uh, by Jesus performing, uh, you know, those two signs, those two uh, miracles there.
0: Now, you note also that there are a couple of important things in the other Gospels that are missing in John, for example, Mm -hmm. the, the virgin birth and the Sermon on the Mount. What's the significance of that?
1: Yeah, so I think we see that John uh, wrote about a generation after the other Gospels had already been written, so uh, quite clearly uh, he he himself knew those other Gospels, and he presupposed, and we have certain, you know, indirect clues in, in his Gospel, he presupposed that his readers knew either one or several of the written Gospels, or at least the Gospel story, and so rather than, you know, reinventing the wheel, as it were, he he presupposes a basic knowledge of the Gospel story, and then Includes events that are not already included. I think mm-hmm. probably the most striking of that is the raising of Lazarus, which is probably yeah. the greatest miracle Jesus has ever performed. But almost inexplicably, it's not found in the other Gospels. And so this is a great example how John, as an eyewitness, was able to draw on his recollection and you know also his his experience uh, to to include events that the other Gospel, for whatever reason, chose not to include.
0: Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. The seven messianic signs that you single out are the the wedding, the clearing of the temple, healing the centurion's son, healing the lame man, feeding the 5,000, healing the blind man, and as you said, Lazarus. What stands Mm -hmm. out to you most in the second one? We'll move to that one, the clearing out of the temple. Yes, you know, i
1: I've done a lot of thinking, especially about the second one. It's really the only of those seven signs so that is not narrowly miraculous, as such. You know, uh, the, the way the, the Gospels, uh, the other Gospels, would would define miracle as a powerful, you know, sign of Jesus where he, uh, you know, heals the sick or or even raised the dead. It's basically mm-hmm. uh, a prophetic style. Uh, act of jesus that uh, signifies divine judgment in this case uh, jesus you might say destroyed the temple you know he overthrew the uh, the tables of the money changers and he scattered the doves and so forth so he kind of destroyed the temple uh, to signify that the temple itself would be destroyed uh, which is a sign of divine judgment uh, on israel because the temple was their uh, central sanctuary. And of course, we know that happened historically in 70 AD. And so I believe, though, that John wrote after that event. So he knew that the temple literally uh, had already been destroyed. So at one level, Jesus' prediction had already been fulfilled uh, in that regard, because Jesus made that prediction 40 years before it actually happened in around, you know, 30 or 33 AD. Uh, But then that's not enough. John explains that it was in fact Jesus who was that temple, you know, in a spiritual sense, so that the sign really pointed to the destruction of Jesus' body, you know, the spiritual temple, and to his resurrection after three days. So it is It's just a fascinating layer where you have the sign itself, the temple cleansing as it's commonly called, and then you have to ask, what does that sign point to? And I think in this case it points to the crucifixion and the resurrection uh, after three days.
0: You turn to two characters, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. What roles do they play in John's Gospel?
1: Yes, so I think John deliberately juxtaposes those two accounts because Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman in chapters 3 and 4 are contrasting characters. And so what John does is throughout the Gospels, he has those representative figures. And in each case, they represent either faith in Jesus or lack thereof. And so you see that in many ways, Nicodemus becomes this character who represents a failure to understand the significance of jesus signs especially in jerusalem because uh most people start you know reading the nicodemus narrative in chapter 3 verse 1 but in the book i'm arguing it's actually better to start in at the end of the previous chapter in chapter 2 verse 23 which talks about the fact that uh, jesus performed many signs in jerusalem but but people didn 't really understand, and so jesus didn 't entrust himself to them, and then seamlessly uh, Nicodemus is is brought into the narrative as, as somebody who who basically epitomizes that failure to understand the true significance and so he, he tells Jesus, you know like you must be a man who came from God because nobody could do those signs you know unless God were with them and then Jesus immediately pivots in that conversation to to the fact that Nicodemus must be born again he Jesus discerned that he he lacked true spiritual understanding you know of who he was and and then moving to the Samaritan woman, you see that kind of by contrast, she seems to be engaged in this lively uh, conversation interchange with jesus and uh, and other than Nicodemus, who gradually just kind of like you know says less and less, and in the end just kind of like fades from view the Samaritan woman kind of stands her ground, and in the end, you know, says, could this be the Messiah? You know, and then she brings uh, the other people from her village to Jesus, almost like some sort of an evangelist, if you will, uh, for Jesus, and then they come to Jesus and say, hey, it's no longer because of what the woman told us, because now we've seen for ourselves, and we believe that you're truly the Savior of the world. So uh, Nicodemus represents, you know, the the teacher of Israel, ironically, uh, represents unbelief in Jesus' Messianic signs, while that Samaritan woman represents uh, a growing understanding of who Jesus truly is, the Messiah. And so uh, she serves as a representative character, and, and John wants his readers, you know, you and me and anyone who reads the gospel, to, to come to the same conclusion as, that the Samaritans do, that, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world.
0: Let's turn to the healing of the lame man. What are the details that you would highlight in that story?
1: Yes, so uh, this is the first miracle in the so-called festival cycle, which uh, uh, spans from chapter 5 through chapter 10, that second unit. And uh, incidentally, both the Cana cycle and the festival cycle include uh, three uh, signs each. Uh, so again, you see how carefully John constructed uh, his gospel with the signs as the primary building block. And then the seventh sign is, is the raising of Lazarus, which is kind of in a section that, that is unique uh, in and of itself. But the uh, the uh, healing of the man in chapter 5 who had been unable to walk for 38 Years, and there's often some significance to the numbers I mean that's a long time for someone to not have been able to walk and it, it makes an even greater miracle uh, a greater messianic sign that Jesus was able to restore that man's ability to walk uh, but as a representative character, what you see here is that even though that man was the recipient of a remarkable uh you know sign of Jesus in his ability uh to be able to walk. He didn't really. it didn't lead to understanding on his part of who Jesus truly was. We see in the remaining narrative that he he, he reports Jesus to the authorities. Uh, you know, he, he's very uh, indifferent to Jesus's spiritual uh, claims, and so this would be almost like some sort of a foil for John's message that it is possible for someone, you know, to uh, like in the in the in the, the next sign. The, the five thousand who ate the loaves of bread and, and ate the fish, and yet, you know, they did not. It did not lead to true spiritual understanding of who Jesus was. And then we see that, just like with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, that lame man is contrasted with, with the blind man in the the third and and final sign in the festival cycle, uh, and and that man who had been born blind. He does end up worshiping Jesus. And so, you know, the listeners may want to read chapters five and nine, the lame man and the blind man and see how they're, they're similar in many ways. You know, both healings took place on the Sabbath and so forth. But, but the key difference that illustrates John's entire message on the signs is that the lame man didn't understand uh, who Jesus was and the blind man did.
0: You bring up, or John brings up, a a remarkable point. How in the world could, quote, unbelief linger in Jesus's own household? Yes, in
1: in chapter 7, I think it comes on the heels of the end of chapter 6, where, uh, you know, Jesus talks about being the bread of life, and then he says, when many of even his disciples heard it, you know, they said, this is a hard teaching, you know who can understand it and they they stopped following Jesus, they turned back, no longer walked with him and and, and that shows how this is kind of a watershed moment in the gospel that that even many of jesus 's closer followers uh, uh, turned away and, and really only the twelve are left and so then uh, chapter seven opens the second half of that uh, book of signs and in there you see Jesus in his own household with his own uh, brothers, and uh, and even they uh, clearly don't believe. They, they tell him, just you going up to to Judea that that everyone may see the signs you're doing, and and uh, you know don't 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 uh, keep it a secret that you're the Messiah if you really are. And so I think uh, John shows that unbelief is very widespread, and that there's only this small believing remnant you know, that, that, that stays with Jesus. And then uh, in the second half of the book, you see that it is those, uh, you know, 12 disciples whom Jesus trains, whom he prepares uh, for their mission to, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth.
0: Next, the healing of the blind man, the man born blind. Yep. Well, what counts the most there, would you say?
1: Yeah, so what fascinates me most about that, that it's it's almost like a, a parable the way Jesus uh tells that story, because at the end of, of chapter nine, you know, after you have that that lengthy narrative of of the healing of a man born blind, which is really in and of itself just an incredible uh miracle when you think about it. But but at the end, uh you have this vignette where the uh the the Pharisees uh, come to Jesus and say, are we blind? You know? And Jesus said, says to them, well, if you're blind, you would have no guilt, but now if you say we see, your guilt remains. So it's almost like uh, what John is, is using, that healing, that Messianic sign force to illustrate that, that people who persist in their unbelief toward Jesus, they are spiritually blind, just like the man was literally blind blind, but he's showing that literal blindness can be cured, right? Like in in, in the case of of that man born blind whom Jesus opened uh, his eyes, but but spiritual blindness, like in the case of the Jewish authorities who rejected Jesus, there's really no cure for that. Uh, And so even though John does not feature any literal parables, unlike the other three Gospels, uh, he uses this uh, account of the um, healing of the blind man as as some sort of a uh, a real life uh, parable, if you will, that illustrates uh, the perils of spiritual blindness
0: you, you devote many, many pages to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Is this the ultimate miracle is is this the is this the greatest at least in terms of signs mm-hmm. the greatest proof, the strongest evidence?
1: Absolutely. I think uh, John saves the best for last, as it were, and, you know, you see that uh, it's kind of fascinating. People have tried to find some sort of common denominator in those seven signs, but I don't really think there is one other than they're all pointing to Jesus in in various ways. You know, I mean, there's, they're very uh, diverse, the, you know, turning water into wine or clearing the temple, healings and, you know, feeding of the multitudes. Uh, but then here you have really the only raising, you know, of a man back to life who'd been dead for four days. And so as the only raising, it kind of pre, you know, anticipates the resurrection of Jesus himself uh, at the end of the gospel. Um, and, and, and so it, it epitomizes his ability uh, to raise the dead. And so uh, the sign is the raising of Lazarus. Uh, the, the, the reality to which that sign points is the resurrection of uh, Jesus himself, which is, of course, the climax of the entire narrative of John's Gospel.
0: What is the significance of the foot washing, which you get to in in the section headed the Farewell Discourse?
1: Yes. So, uh, you know, in the other Gospels, the, the introduction to the Passion narrative, to the account of, of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection is, is really kind of like toward the end, but In John's case, the introduction to the passion narrative is in chapter 13. It's about halfway through the gospel. And so at the foot washing, what you see uh, is that it is there that Jesus already reveals the very love that caused him to give his life on the cross uh, for humanity. Uh, And so he shows that he was motivated, not just uh, when dying on the cross, but throughout his entire ministry. About love for people, especially uh, those who uh, followed him uh, closely. And so it, it, it says there, now before the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And I think to the end has just this double entendre, this double meaning here. It means, you know, he loved them. Uh, to the very end, you know, you might say to the bitter end, all the way to the cross, but he also loved them, you know, completely, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, perfectly uh, with, with uh, the, uh, the very love that John three sixteen says, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son.
0: When all is concluded, Andreas, what will be the, quote, messianic community?
1: So uh, we see in chapter 13, uh, you know, as you alluded to, that that you have a different group of people uh, than in the prologue uh, who are called Jesus' own. I just quoted, uh, you know, John 13, verse 1, where it says that Jesus loved his own who are in the world. Now, in in the prologue, it says that uh the word, you know, Jesus came to that which was his own, uh, but his own his own people did not receive him. So there are, you know, these Jewish people representative by the authorities. You know, there were individual Jews, I believe, but the, the authorities representing the nation of Israel rejected Jesus at his first coming as the Messiah. And so uh, God's chosen people, Israel, uh, rejected their Messiah. Jesus came to offer the kingdom to them. He, he, he came to demonstrate his love. They had the promises, like Paul wrote uh, you know, in Romans, uh, that God would send the Messiah. But tragically, they failed to recognize that Jesus was that Messiah. And so Jesus then uh, starts out with this Messianic remnant. They were still all Jews, right, the 12, but they were now uh, people who had placed their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so I would refer to them as Jesus' new Messianic community. They were the representatives of the church. They were the recipients of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, including but not limited to the Jewish people, and so they were the ones you know to whom the commissioning was given at the end of the gospel as the father sent me jesus said so i am sending
0: you the book is signs of the messiah an introduction to john's gospel professor kastenberger thank you for joining us you're so welcome mark thank you very much andre and thank you for listening to our conversation which has been supported by wyoming catholic college which combines great books the catholic tradition and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.